This is womensleadershipsuccess.com radio, episode number 63. Did you know, according to Gallup, as high as 70% of employees are not engaged in their work? Companies have spent huge amounts of time and money to boost engagement. But here's the problem. Most engagement strategies don't work. Do you think you know how to motivate people? Do you know how to motivate yourself? Listen to the latest research on motivation to discover why the old approaches don't work and what does. You will be surprised. It is not what you think it is. Welcome to Women's Leadership Podcast, showing you how to influence people, improve your performance, and advance your career. Brought to you by women's leadership and career expert Sabrina Brom and womensleadershipsuccess.com. Here's your chance to meet women trendsetters leading the way to success, accomplishment, and balance in business and life, no matter if you're a manager, CEO, or entrepreneur. Join Sabrina for coaching and no-nonsense advice to improve your career and bottom line. This is Sabrina Brom with womensleadershipsuccess.radio. Today we're talking to Susan Fowler, who has over 30 years' experience as a researcher, consultant, and coach in the field of leadership. She is the lead developer of the Ken Blanchard Company's Optimal Motivation Program, which has been implemented worldwide. Fowler is widely known as one of the top experts on personal empowerment, and she is the best-selling author of Situational Self-Leadership and the One-Minute Manager with Ken Blanchard and Lori Hawkins. Her latest book is Why Motivating People Doesn't Work and What Does, The New Science of Leading, Energizing, and Engaging. Welcome, Susan. Thank you so much, Sabrina. It's such a pleasure to talk to you, and um, I really enjoyed your book. And I'm wondering, what did you problem did you hope to solve by writing this book? Well, <laughs> one of them was personal in that I've been researching this for 20 years, and it literally had what I was discovering and what I was putting into action was changing my life. And then through um, the Ken Blanchard companies, I had the privilege as you just mentioned, of literally traveling around the world and teaching these ideas to people and just said, wow, I just I feel compelled, I feel um, obligated in a positive way to get these ideas into the world. So part of it was just scratching my own need to uh, you know, share with the world what was making such a difference. And then I think um, you know, just on a really practical level, there was a lot of information coming out about the new science and motivation. Um, we say new. It's, it's been around since the 1960s uh, in, in a really um, digestible form. But people were talking about the new science, but there was really not that many ways being written, or any that I could find, ways of what do you do with it? How do you actually make it practical, especially for leaders and organizations that are being held accountable, so to speak, for motivating people? So they're being held accountable to do something they can't do. And I wanted, I wanted to save them and, and give them a, a sense of relief. Well, I, that's wonderful. As, a, as an executive coach in companies, I hear this all the time, that people, the managers need to motivate people. And, of course, your book explains that that really isn't possible. And I'm wondering if you could share with us what the three psychological needs are that motivate people and why it's so hard for people to satisfy these? Well, uh, what the real science has shown is that every human being, regardless of gender, generation, uh, race, culture, has 
three psychological needs, and when these psychological needs are satisfied, this is when we thrive. This is when we flourish as human beings. And those three psychological needs, and by the way, you can see them in any baby if, if you uh, just kind of notice, so you don't even need the science, mm-hmm. but it's a need for autonomy, which is our perception that we have choices, that we're the um, source of our own behavior, that we have the capacity to make our own decisions. It's like a baby wanting to grab the spoon from you and feed himself um, or, you know, close his mouth shut when you're trying to stick the spoon in his mouth. He's hungry, but he wants autonomy. He wants the freedom of, you know, determining when that food's going to go in or not or to do it himself. Um, The second psychological need is for relatedness. And relatedness is our real yearning, if you will, um, to feel that we can care about people and that they will care for us or about us um, without ulterior motives. Um, you know, so we don't feel like we're in these relationships that are devoid of meaning or caring and that we're just being used by the organization or to somebody else's end. Mm-hmm. It's also a sense of um, feeling that we're contributing to something greater than ourselves, that we're contributing to the welfare of the whole, because we are by nature social animals, so we're interconnected. And then the third psychological need is for competence, this uh, feeling that we can master the challenges of everyday life um, and also that we can grow and get better and that there is a trajectory, that we are constantly learning and growing. And if you ever have wondered why little two-year-olds start asking you the question that can drive you crazy, which is why, why, why? The reason they're constantly asking why is because they have a natural need to learn and grow. That is our human nature. So um, science has shown that we all have these three psychological needs, and to the extent that these psychological needs are being satisfied, we thrive, flourish, have a lot of positive energy, vitality, and sense of well-being. If they're undermined or thwarted, then um, we uh, lose that energy and we get distracted by what I call the junk food. Uh, we, we need to be paid for something or, you know, we, we succumb or, or give in to a lot of the what I call fatal distractions that are around us in the workplace all the time. Mm-hmm. So um, when you meet those needs, does that make a person highly motivated? Well, I think it's a really wonderful question because um, – inherent in the question is one of the things that really makes the science of motivation different than traditional approaches, mm-hmm. and that is the term highly motivated. It kind, of, um, it, it kind of leads us to believe that people are either motivated or they're not. And one of the big, big um, I think, core assumptions, I guess I would call it, of my book is this. People are always motivated. Uh, you know, they're motivated to listen to your program today. Uh, if people are not listening to your program, they're still motivated. They're just motivated differently. Mm-hmm. So it's really important for us to understand that when people have their psychological needs met, they're motivated differently. The quality of their motivation is different than people who are motivated with other things, those things I call the fatal distractions or the junk food of motivation. So when when a company understands this, how does it change the workplace? Well, it's it's pretty profound, and uh, <laughs> um, I, I'd like to share with you a, a story that uh, happened when I was in uh, China sharing these ideas, 
and I made the comment that I just made, you know, about the fact that people are always motivated. And as a leader, you cannot motivate anyone. And and, I, and there was this kind of like silence. And then I said, you can't motivate anyone, but what you can do is create an environment or a workplace where it's more likely for people to have this high-quality motivation. Silence again. And then all of a sudden, because Chinese um, in, our, in a group are so respectful and they, they rarely raise their hands or say anything out loud, you know, they work in small groups very well, but um, in a large setting like this, they're not likely to say anything out loud. And all of a sudden, this man just yells out as loud as he could, shocking. This is just shocking. (laughs) And I swear, we all literally jumped. Uh And I looked at him and I said, what do you mean it's shocking? He goes, my whole career, I've been held accountable for motivating people. And now you're telling me I can't do it, that it's impossible. And I said, that's right. I said, how do you feel about that? He goes, shocked and relieved, (laughs) and it it was so cute, it really opened up an amazing conversation in the room, and what people began to realize was that because of traditional ways of thinking about motivation, we have set up a workplace that's geared like like the, the science was in the 1940s when they were doing all those pigeon experiments and they found that they could get pigeons to do whatever they wanted them to do if they would give them a pellet. And so workplaces are set up on what I call the pecking pigeon paradigm, where we think, well, if people aren't motivated to do what we want them to do, let's just give them something, let's bribe them, and make up for the motivation that they don't have. And as a result, we keep throwing stuff at people to try to motivate them. And at some point, we run out of stuff. At some point, uh, you know, that just breaks down and doesn't work. And the fact is it's never worked. Um, it, we just thought it did. But what would happen is people would give, you know, kind of the signs of being somewhat energetic for a little while. But just like junk food that sends your blood sugar racing and you have that splurge of energy for the moment, then you come crashing and you have less energy than you had before you started. Um, what we've set up is this this really horrible, um, vicious circle, if you will, in the workplace. So I think that what would really change in the workplace is that leaders would become more creative and innovative. They would become more empathetic and understanding. Uh, They would start to use what I call optimal motivation best practices. And it would really help to wean people off of thinking that what they really need are all these external motivators like money and power and status. It's not that people don't need money. It's just that they're not optimally motivated by that money. And what's ironic is that when people are optionally motivated, they end up with the energy that sustains them. They end up being more creative, more innovative, more productive, higher performers over time. And guess what they end up getting? More money. But if they focus on that, the irony is they're less likely to get it. Mm-hmm. Oh, that just makes so much sense. And I wonder if you could tell us more about how one self develops self-regulation. How do you do that? What is well, it and how do you do it? Yeah, self-regulation is one of the keys to um, helping people shift from what we call suboptimal motivation to optimal motivation. And so um, 
leaders, oftentimes what happens is they create these workplaces that makes it really challenging for people to self-regulate. So people's emotional labor is going into dealing with the injustices that occur in the workplace or they're fighting um, their natural tendencies to want to thrive and, you know, they're, they're, let, me just, let me give you just a quick example. Um, and I do this um, a lot of times when I'm teaching this. I will tell people in a classroom, I will say, you know what, you really all need a different perspective. So I need everyone right now, pick up all of your stuff and move to a different table and sit next to different people. And it's fascinating. I get some people kind of staring at me and like just shooting daggers, like they're nested, they don't want to move. Uh-huh. You know, a couple of people jump up immediately like, oh boy, I get to meet someone new. You know, and other people are just like, they're getting their stuff, but you can tell they're ticked off and they really don't want to move. And so what happens is, by the nature of my, okay, get up and move, I have thrown almost everybody in the room into what's called the imposed motivational outlook. They may do it, but they don't want to, all right? Some people have the self-regulation that to, to, um, to uh, transfer that feeling of being imposed. They shift it to saying there's probably a value in moving. And so when they're self-regulating then, they are mindfully managing their, the way they feel, the way they're thinking. And what they're doing is they're linking the activity that I've just asked everybody in the room to do to a value they have. You know, somebody else might say, wow, you know, I don't really feel like moving, but there's probably a good purpose behind this. And I'm here to learn. I'm here to get the most out of, of the moment. And so people, when they are able to shift their motivational outlook through aligning with their values by connecting to some kind of, um, you know, really noble purpose, or because they realize this is going to be fun, this is going to be something I will actually enjoy if I just allow myself to do it, then that's self-regulation. So self-regulation comes through mindfulness. It comes through being able to uh, align whatever you bring asked to do to values and to purpose. So what I really want to encourage leaders to think about is having those kinds of values conversations with their employees. I'm going to stop you before you yeah. give me that one because I just want to say that was this was my favorite part of your book and it clarified how to get my own motivation higher in a way that I've never heard it expressed before. I I really really like that and one of the things that I also liked well, first off, that that I was empowered to be able to do that myself. Yes. And then when you talked about managers doing it, you said before you can do it to other people, you have to do it to yourself. And I thought, <laughs> yeah. whoa, is that that is just almost unheard of in the corporate world? It's you know, you may not be motivated, but you're you've got the whip out, and you're going to get everybody else to do it. You um, know, Sabrina, I'm so glad that you brought that up because when I first showed. Um, my work to Dr. Edward Deasy, who was the father of intrinsic motivation. It's, it's his research that's, that um, now there's, you know, hundreds if not thousands of researchers and tens of thousands of studies. Um, it's, it's the same research that Dan Pink based his book on. It's the research that I've based my book on. Um, but I showed it to Dr. Deasy, and he said, and I said, I want to teach uh, leaders how to help people shift their motivational outlook. And there's this long pause, and he said, you know, he says, we're so simpatico, he says, except for one thing. He said, 
leaders can't do it to others until they can do it for themselves. And we started talking about it, and he said, can you imagine a leader going to have a performance review who hates performance reviews, thinks they're stupid, doesn't have time, is scared or nervous, doesn't even maybe like the person sitting across the table from them, and yet their whole goal in having his performance review is to try to motivate that person? You know, it's not going to happen. It's just not going to happen. So a leader, and that was really one of the purposes of my book, was to say, stop trying to motivate other people and shift your own motivational outlook for the role you have as a leader. And guess what? You're going to be so much more effective at creating that environment where other people will then become more optimally motivated. Right. And as you know how to develop that skill in yourself, it's going to make it a lot easier for you to coach other people in how to do it. Exactly. I mean, when you start to ask yourself or, or, or start to think about, how could I be more mindful? You know, because I know mindfulness is a self-regulation technique. What does that actually mean? So for me, one of the things I've done for the past 20 years, and, and I'm now much better at it than I, I was for the previous 17, because um, <laughs> I, I don't have what's called dispositional mindfulness. I, my personality type is quick to judge, quick to react. You know, it's not a mindful personality type. Mm-hmm. And so um, I really have had to focus on it consciously. And what you find is that when you stop and you say, wow, okay, what am I feeling right now? Why am I feeling angry? Why am I feeling anxious? Why am I feeling uh, whatever it is I'm feeling? And I start asking myself why. You know, why is that? And I start peeling back the layers of that onion and get to the core of it. And what I begin to realize is that, oh, wow, my sense of autonomy has just been eroded or you know what i'm not feeling a sense of relatedness that i feel like i'm being used by this person or i i'm having a lack of competence i don't feel like i i can really pull this off you know and so uh, um what i begin to recognize through my own mindfulness is that my psychological needs have been eroded well through that experience now what happens is i am so much more able so when I'm in a conversation, I just had a, my nephew just called me uh, right before you know your call, and he was really frustrated by something. And I just said, why are you so frustrated? And he started talking about, so why is that so frustrating to you? And I literally was having a motivational outlook conversation with him in that moment. And now what I find is that I have people calling me all the time because they know that I'm not going to judge them. I'm not going to push them to do something. I'm not going to get them to take action. I'm simply going to be able to ask them the questions that will help them to be more mindful. I learned that by asking myself those questions. That's beautiful. Could you say a little bit more about uh, how to have a motivational outlook conversation at work? Yeah, yeah. Um, that's I think, as, as you know from reading the book, that's you know there's a whole chapter devoted to you know what is a motivational outlook conversation and how do you have them and. We've actually created quite a structure for it because I think that initially this is something that managers are not used to doing because we're so used to doing what? Problem solving, action planning. And I'd love for leaders to start to think about that if you go into a goal-setting meeting or a problem-solving session, um, that if a person has a suboptimal motivation out- outlook for the goals being set or for the problems being solved, then none of your action planning is going to work. It's like building on sand. So this is a conversation that one needs to have to help the person, like if I was having a motivational conversation with you, Sabrina, it would be to help you 
understand your underlying motivation for doing or not doing whatever the conversation is about. So it's not about me trying to understand it as your leader. It's about me asking you open-ended questions to help your mindfulness process, your self-regulation process, so that you can make that connection. So, so there's a basic underlying belief that you can trust that people are able to do that. Oh, it's amazing. It's amazing um, that, uh, yeah, it's really a phenomenon that when we do it in the, in the classroom, what we see are people just making these shifts. It is extraordinary. Now, if a leader hasn't had a conversation in the past with, let's say that if I haven't had a conversation with you, like, Sabrina, what, what are your values when it comes to your work? Mm-hmm. You know, you say you're an executive coach. What are your values as an executive coach? If you could tell me what the values of your company are, but you can't tell me what your personal values are, then that's a conversation that we need to have that's part of this motivational outlook conversation because I cannot help you align to values that you don't have. I can't help you connect to a purpose that you've never thought about. So the motivational outlook conversation typically takes about five to seven minutes, but if leaders have never had these conversations about values and purpose with their people before, that either needs to be a preliminary conversation or you need just to allow some time, you know, to have help that person think through, yeah, what do I value, you know, about my work or what are the values I came to work with this morning? And I know what the I know what the company has written on the walls, but what are mine? Right. And what a what a difference when people are asked to to tell what their values are and what's important to them. Oh. And how many people, people have not asked. thought about it? Right. I'm sorry. Exactly. Yeah. No. Yeah. We're just about done, and I'm wondering, is it, what would you like to leave us with in terms of, uh, there's so much in your book, but what, what would you like us to know that I haven't asked you already? You know, I think that a lot of the feedback that I'm getting is coming from um, the introduction of the book, which implores people to start to look at the difference between traditional motivation and what we're calling optimal motivation. And so one of one of the things I would like to leave with people is that there's really a significant and meaningful difference in the way we've been looking at motivation all these years and the new motivation. And then I think the other thing that I'm getting from people a lot is, is Chapter 6 of the book where it's saying, you know, your underlying beliefs need to shift. And those beliefs will then lead you to very specific optimal motivation best practices. And so I'd love for leaders to start to think about how to do things differently based on their new beliefs, based on a different way of looking at motivation. That's wonderful. Thank you so much for taking this time to talk to us today, Susan. Well, thank you. Uh, Your great questions. I could go on all day, couldn't I? (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) Take care. Bye-bye. Okay, thank you, Sabrina. To get a free copy of my new special report, How to Prepare for a Meeting for Greater Influence, Impact, and Career Success, go to womensleadershipsuccess.com and sign up on the form that appears on the screen after a moment. And thanks for listening. Thank you for joining your host, Sabrina Brahm, on another Women's Leadership Podcast. If you have questions or comments, you can email her at sabrina at sabrinabrahm.com. Since 1989, Sabrina and her team have helped hundreds of women managers, business leaders, and entrepreneurs with valuable trainings, articles, books, and executive coaching. 
For additional tips, interviews, and free access to Great Leaders Today mini-course, visit www.womensleadershipsuccess.com.